Cordry here. It's Reading Aloud. Thanks for uh, tuning in. I'm assuming some of you may be on uh, a train or uh, a bus. Maybe you're in a rental car. Maybe you're maybe you're at elevation. Maybe right now you're at 35,000 feet cruising across the U.S. somewhere. Or maybe other parts unknown. It's a big travel time of year. So uh, if you're traveling, thanks for including me with your travel plans. Um, and if you're not, if you're staying home for the holidays, um, thank you as well. Thank you. Thanks to everyone. Well, maybe not everyone. Um, this is episode five of Reading Aloud. We have a packed show for you today. So um, we have a little a little holiday gift at the end. Act three is just a little present from me to you. Um, and then in the middle of the show, we have this wonderful interview with this guy, uh, Brad Anthony Johnson, who's a writer who um, he teaches at Harvard, and he's, he's had some best-selling books. He's had some great short stories and essays. Um, he's won the Pushcar Prize. He's a fantastic writer and, come to find out, a really genuine and like, kind guy. Um, the interview is wonderful, and he's really honest and sort of um, self-deprecating in all, the great, in all the best possible ways. So, um, And this is, our, this is the first time we, that we've interviewed an author on the show, which is really exciting. And before we have that interview, um, my friend Jacob is going to come in, um, and he reads uh, Brett's story. So we hear... Jacob, my friend Jacob Pitts, who's a wonderful actor, read this short story, and then we go right into Brett talking about the story and his process and stuff. So it's it's a really interesting conversation. But before then, I want to read a piece by... Um, nope. No, they said no. Sam? Nope. They said no, you can't. But I want to... Nope. Um, what if it's mm-hmm. already... Nope. But I think it would be... F- nah, no, not at all. What if I just really mm-hmm. like this? Nope. One. Mm. Okay. So you're saying I need to just yeah, just no. on the mm-hmm. and take they the. They said no to all of it. What about? Mm-mm. That's a no too. Yep. Well then, let's start with Jacob. Here's Jacob. Lamright had surprised everyone by offering to drive his son's girlfriend home. The girl was three months shy of seventeen, two years older than Robbie. She'd been held back in school. Her driver's license was currently suspended. She had a reputation. A body and a barcode tattooed on the back of her neck, Lamright sometimes glimpsed it when her green hair was ponytailed. She'd come over for supper this evening, and though she volunteered to help Robbie and his mother with the dishes, Lamright had said he'd best deliver her home, it being a school night. He knew this pleased his wife and Robbie, the notion of him giving the girl another chance. Driving, Lamright thought the moon looked like a fingerprint of chalk. They headed south on Airline Road, a couple of miles, and he'd turn right on Saratoga, then left onto Everhart, and eventually they'd enter King's Crossing, the subdivision with pools and sprinkler systems. At supper, Robbie and the girl had told, in tandem, a story about playing hide-and-seek on the abandoned country club golf course. Hide-and-seek, Lamright thought. Is that what y'all call it now? Then they started talking about wildlife. The girl had once seen a blue and gold McCall riding on the headrest of a man's passenger seat, and another time in a pasture in the Rio Grande Valley she'd spotted zebras grazing among cattle. Robbie's mother recalled finding goats in the tops of peach trees in her youth. Robbie told the story of visiting the strange neighborhood in San Antonio where the muster of peacocks lived, and it led the girl to confess her desire to get a fan of peacock feathers tattooed on her lower back. She also wanted a tattoo of a busted magnifying glass hovering over the words, Fix me. Lamright couldn't figure what she saw in his son. 
Until the girls started visiting, Robbie had superhero posters on his walls and a fleet of model airplanes suspended from the ceiling with fishing wire. Lamright had actually long been skeptical of the boys' room, worrying it looked too childish, worrying it confirmed what might be called softness of character. But now the walls were stripped and all that remained of the fighter fleet was the fishing wire stubble on the ceiling. Two weeks ago, one of his wife's necklaces disappeared. Last week, a bottle of her nerve pills. Then over the weekend, he'd caught Robbie and the girl with a flask of whiskey in the backyard. She'd come to supper tonight to make amends. Traffic was light. When he stopped at the intersection of Airline and Saratoga, the only headlights he saw were far off like buoys in the bay. The turn signal dinged. He debated, then clicked it off. He accelerated straight across Saratoga. We were supposed to turn scenic route, he said. We'll visit a little. But they didn't. There was only the low hum of the tires on the road, the noise of the truck pushing against the wind. Lamright hadn't contributed anything to the animal discussion earlier, but now he considered mentioning what he'd read a while back, how bald eagle nests are often girded with cat collars, strung with the little bells and tags of lost pets. He stayed quiet, though. They were out near the horse stables now. The air smelled of alfalfa and manure. The streetlights had fallen away. The girl said, I didn't know you could get to King's Crossing like this. They crossed the narrow bridge over Oso Creek, then came into a clearing, a swath of clay and patchy brush, gnarled mesquite trees. He pulled onto the road's shoulder. Caliche pinged against the truck's chassis. He doused his headlights, and the scrub around them silvered, turned to moonscape. They were outside the city limits, miles from where the girl lived. He killed the engine. I know you have doubts about me. I know I'm not. Cut him loose, Lamright said. Do what? Give it a week, then tell him you've got someone else. Her eyes scanned the night through the windshield. Maybe she was getting her bearings, calculating how far out they were. Cows loud somewhere in the darkness. She said, I love Rob. You're a pretty girl. You've been to the rodeo a few times. You'll do all right, but not with him. The chalky moon was in and out of clouds. A wind buffeted the truck and kicked up the odor of the brackish creek. The girl was picking at her cuticles, which made her look docile. Is there anything I can say here? Is there something you're wanting to hear? You can say you'll quit him, Lamright said. I'd like to have your word on that subject. And if I don't, you'll leave me on the side of the road? We're just talking. We're sorting out a problem. Or you'll beat me up and throw me in the creek? You're too much for him. He's overmatched. And so if I don't dump him, you'll what? Rape me? Murder me? Bury me in the dunes? Lisa, he said, his tone pleasingly superior. He liked how much he sounded like a father. Another wind blew, stiff and parched, rustling the trees. To Lamright, they appeared to shiver like they'd gotten cold. A low cloud unspooled on the horizon. The cows were quiet. I see how you look at me, you know, she said, shifting toward him. She unbuckled her seatbelt, the noise startlingly loud in the truck. Lamright's eyes went to the rearview mirror. No one around. She scooted an inch closer, two inches, three. He smelled lavender, her hair or cool skin. 
She said, everyone sees it. Nobody will be surprised you drove me out here. I'm telling you to stay away from my son. In the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. There's no mystery here, Lamright said. Silly, she said. Do what? I said you're silly. There's mystery all around us. Goats in trees, macaws in cars. Enough, Lamright thought. He cranked the ignition, switched on his headlights. A man who drives his son's underage girl into remote areas. That's awfully mysterious. Just turn him loose, he said. A girl who flees the truck and comes home dirty and crying. What will she tell her parents? Her boyfriend, the man's depressed wife. Just leave him be, he said. That's the takeaway tonight. Will the police be called? Will they match the clay on her shoes to his tires? Lisa, or will she keep it to herself? Will it be something she and the man always remember when they see each other? When she marries his son? When she bears his grandbabies? These are bona fide mysteries, Mr. Lamright. Lisa, he said, Lisa, let's be clear. But she was already out of the truck, sprinting toward the creek. She flashed through the brush and descended the bank, and Lamright was shocked by the languid swiftness with which she crossed the earth. Blood was surging in his veins like he'd swerved to miss something in the road, and his truck had just skidded to a stop, and he didn't yet know if he was hurt, if the world was changed. The passenger door was open, the interior light burning, pooling. The girl jumped across the creek and bolted alongside it. She cut to and fro. He wanted to see her as an animal he'd managed to avoid, a rare and dangerous creature he described for Robbie when he got home, but really her movement reminded him of a trickle of water tracking through pebbles. It stirred in him a floating sensation, the curious and scattered feeling of being born on waves or air or wings. He was disoriented and short of breath. He knew he was at the beginning of something, though just then he couldn't say exactly what. That was Jacob Pitts reading Encounters with Unexpected Animals. It was written by uh, my guest, Brett Anthony Johnston. He's on the phone with me from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Brett. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a first for us. We've never actually spoken to a real living author. This is big news. Um, what is uh, you kind of cut out. It, you cut out right when you said you've never spoken to a real, so I'm just going to trust that your listeners will insert something hideous there. I've never spoken to a real man before. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. What is that well, like? <laughs> uh, we'll see what we, I'll see who I can find around here to step on the phone. Uh, Brett is the author of uh, Remember Me Like This, which was a, a best-selling novel. It was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection. It was uh, an editor's choice in the New York Times Book Review. He also wrote Corpus Christi Stories, which is uh, I just picked up, which was named a best book of the year by The Independent and The Irish Times. His stuff has been uh, in The Atlantic Monthly, Esquire, Paris Review, uh, Best American Short Stories. He's won a Pushcart Prize, the Stephen Turner Award, the Cohen Prize. Your nonfiction stuff has been in The Times, uh, The Times Magazine, Wall Street Journal, NPR's All Things Considered. You graduated from the uh, Iowa Writers' Workshop. 
recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship. You wrote a documentary about skateboarding, and you're the director of creative running at Harvard. Holy shit! Uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's that's uh, a common thing when when people find out that I teach at Harvard. They say, "Holy shit!" Yeah, like, and then they usually follow it up with, "We didn't see that coming." <laughs> how did you How did you make your way to Harvard? I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it, I I had never set foot on an Ivy League campus before I came here for the interview, so it's. Um, you know, it's it's a great job. It's 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 such a great job that I I expect to be fired every day. <laughs> I uh, not to brag, but I am a Harvard University Extension student. I mean, I think you should brag, man. I, I think that's how you should start every podcast. That's brag worthy, right? For sure. I've withdrawn from two classes, but I finished mm-hmm. two. So uh, two out of four is not terrible. Not at all. I mean, it, it, those two that you finished were the more important ones, Absolutely. no doubt. Yeah, obviously. Um, where did this story uh, come from, this encounters with unexpected animals? Where did this, um, how did this pop into your brain, and what's sort of the origin of this story? Yeah, I don't know that, I don't know the origin. I know there's a couple of details in there that I, that I know where they came from, but I don't know the, the exact story. I, I know that when I was, when I was working on that novel that you were kind enough to mention, it, um, I would just get so pissed off at it and frustrated. And, and hmm. I'd been working on it for like six years and, and every so often I would do what, uh, Flannery O'Connor called taking a vacation. And I would just put the novel away and I would go write a story. And, and this, this was huh. one of those little vacations. Um, wow. But I don't know where I don't know where it came from. Um, it, I what I know is that I I thought his plan would work. Like I thought it would I thought it would work out. I thought he would take her home and he would say, "Hey, you know, look, you have green hair yeah. and tattoos, and my boy has superhero posters on the wall. You're you're kind of out of his league." And I sort of thought she would shrug her shoulders and say, okay, and then he'd drop her off, and, and that would be it. Um, so I was writing in that direction, and then everything changed um, when he accelerated straight across the, the intersection and, and instead of turning right where he was supposed to. And, and that's kind of where I got really interested in the story. Did you sort of change sides when you were writing it, or were you always on? Because it seems like... There's a great one of the great things about the story and is the shift in power and it's really fun as a reader and sort of in any medium if you're watching a play or watching a movie when there's a really dramatic power shift it's fun to see those two people negotiate that and I wondered if you were on the father's side in the beginning and maybe when he accelerated and didn't turn right did you get on the girl's side cuz I I sort of you know shift my allegiances halfway through the story, which I thought was really fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for saying that. I mean, that's, that's a really, that's a really uh, generous and, and kind way to read this story. And I think that's, I think that's probably similar to, to what happened when I was writing it. I, although I, I may have started out a little bit more on, on the girl's side. I, I did think his plan was going to work, but 
I, I think I, I think I always had kind of, I was always kind of rooting for her, even though I, I thought the deck was stacked against her. Um, right. But when, when she kind of turns the tables on him the first time, I remember, I remember that was one of the, the couple of times when I was writing the story when I felt myself kind of lean forward and, yeah. and just kind of get interested in it. And any time that, that I do, when I feel myself just trying to get closer to the page, that always feels like a, a good sign to me. Was there a moment when you're writing this piece where it could have gone one of two ways, where you were sort of had an idea about something and then was maybe convinced otherwise and took it somewhere else? Or did, as it was coming out of your brain, did you know that this is going to end with her opening this door and bolting? Or did that just sort of come organically? Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely a surprise. And it was, and it was a, a surprise that required a, a, a fair amount of rewriting of the earlier parts of the story so that, so that we would be prepared for it. But I was, I was really happy and um, excited to, to do that rewriting because I'm a writer who I, I'm a writer and a reader who craves surprise. If, if, uh, mm. if a story, whether it's mine or someone else's, if I don't feel like it has the potential to surprise me, I'll I'll put it down, and and that was definitely kind of the one of the last surprises of the story was her just like you say like bolting. I, I didn't see that coming, um, but once it happened, it it felt like where the story had been heading all along. I just I just wasn't aware of it. Did did Esquire come to you and say generate? content for us or did you already have this story and pit like how did that how does that work out where Esquire comes yeah. to you? Yeah, they had um they they had they'd come to me before for a couple of things and I always felt really, really lucky to to be kind of tapped in that way. And they'd asked me to to write some things. One time they did a they were doing a, a series where you had to. They they would ask writers to to write an entire story on a napkin um, that had the Esquire <laughs> logo on it, and wow. you had to fit a whole story on there. And you only got one nap. So if you messed that one up, you didn't get to participate. You know, it wouldn't show up in the magazine or wow. wherever. And and then another time, they would take a random line from. Uh, a letter that a reader had sent in, and it could just be about a, a really random line, and say that you have to use that as the first line of a story, and they would give you something like 24 or 48 hours to write a story um, out of that. So they had done that kind of thing with me before, but this one, um, this one was just it really was just a byproduct of me being pissed off at this novel. It was just me right. not wanting to work on the novel anymore. And I, you know, I may have even just given it to myself as an exercise. I, I really don't remember where it started. Right. Um, there's, like I said, there's a couple of details that I know where they came from, but I don't know, I don't know where the, the, the story that where the where the, the premise came from, um, and so when it was done, I had had such a good relationship with Esquire beforehand that I sent it to them, and they and they were great about it. Did you have um, in your own life? Did you play sort of a, a role as either the father or the son or the girlfriend in 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 your past? Did you have some sort of 
life experience as one of these characters? No, I think I had a life experience like the boy with the superhero posters on his wall of right. like, you know, just always being interested in uh, girls who were out of my league. Like I, I was that kid. I'm you with know? you, buddy. Um, but no, the I was I never, I never, you know, had the the courage to get a bunch of tattoos and dye my hair green and. I've never had enough authority to, you know, drive anyone into the woods. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when this comes out in, on like, a hard copy, like, at the, you know, when it's at the newsstand in Harvard mm-hmm. Square, do you, do you go down there that morning and pick it up, or do you think, uh, it's just, I'm glad it happened, I'm glad people are appreciative of it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, go get a copy, or do you run and sort of, like, want to see it in your hand in print? That's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, that's totally what I would do. I, yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm can't like the way people camp out for iPhones. Like that's me camping out for the new issue of Esquire. <laughs> right, right. I mean, but to see your, you know, your work in print in Esquire, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. They've, they've been, they've been really, really great to me over the years. Um, and yeah, I mean that it's that's been a, a really great relationship, and I'm, and I'm proud of it. Um, and I've also, you know, just. I remember when I was starting out writing stories, um, you know, I mean, this is decades ago. Uh, I remember that I would go to like Best American Short Stories or something, and there would be stories from Esquire in there. So mm. it it has this this history of stories that I, you know, that I've really admired over the years. So to be to be in that same magazine, that that feels pretty cool. Where do you? Like physically, do most of your writing? Do you have a go-to place, or does it change depending on what you're working on? Um, no, it doesn't really change depending on what I'm working on. Most, I have a, you know, I have an office at my house, and it's covered with um, all of these really awesome uh, vintage skateboards and books, and just little, uh, you know, framed letters that that mean stuff to me and cool little keepsakes. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's where I do most of my writing. I was, I was in, um, Milwaukee over the, over the weekend doing some readings out there. And, uh, a, a woman in the audience, uh, she came up and she gave me, uh, a bottle of, Guatemalan moonshine, and so I, I have a, a bottle of Guatemalan moonshine, amongst other things, on my desk to, for inspiration. Is I'm assuming that's one of the strangest gifts that you've received at a reading. Yeah, and one of the coolest. You know, I mean, people people have given me really, really cool and strange <laughs> and awesome things over the years. But uh, she she was she was great. She just came up and said, um, you know, she said a bunch of nice things about the novel, and she said, I finished it in, in Guatemala, and so it seemed like the right thing to do would be to bring you a bottle of Guatemalan moonshine. Sure. And I, yeah, I said, of course, that's the right answer, clearly. <laughs> is, is that hard to negotiate when you're sitting at a table and you're signing books and people come up, strangers, and they say they like your work, which is... And writing is such a solitary thing, and then for it to be exposed to the world, and then to get, it just must be strange to have strangers come up to you and say, I like you and the creative work that you're doing. How does that, 
It must be hard to negotiate, or maybe it's very easy. I don't know. I think you might be overestimating my readers. I, I don't think if anybody, I've ever had anybody come up and say they like me. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm waiting. I hope that'll happen someday. Okay, someday. Uh, but no, when people come up and say nice things, I, I just never believe them. You know, I think they're just being polite, um, you know, unless they're bearing gifts. But why would they drive to their local public library, deal with traffic, park, sit in the back room, listen to you read, and then go up and have you sign their book if they didn't like your writing? Well, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, it, it could be like a, 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 you know, it could be like a really kind of long con that one of my friends is running on me. That's pretty you know? I mean, it could, it could be like a really ingenious way to just, like, take my ego down. Um, but no, I mean, people people are great, and they, and, and you know, they... I think when you write something, I don't, I don't, you know, this like getting published in Esquire or, you know, this story was in best American short stories that same year. And, yeah. and you know, all that stuff is, is amazing. And, and it, and it feels really good for it for a little bit. Um, but I mean, I think what we're all doing is we're doing this because we want readers, you know, you want to, you want to connect with someone in a, in a way that, writing stories allows you to do you know it's the same thing with music or any other kind of yeah uh you know when you when you kind of it it feels yeah you're right it feels vulnerable when you put yourself out there in whatever way that you do um but you're you're just looking for some kind of connection you're looking for another soul on the page and sometimes it's your soul that's there and sometimes it's it's someone else's but but that's what you're looking for um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot cooler when they bring gifts. Um, I had one person come up to me and say, you know, I, I really liked your writing. I, I thought you would be taller. And you know, that's like, wow. um, <laughs> you know, I, which is, which is probably true. I should be taller. Holy cow. Where does that come from? How do you read something and imagine the height of the author? Right, yeah, exactly. I think that person was a sociopath. I'm guessing. Wait, you cut out. Say that again? I'm guessing that person may have been a sociopath who told that to you. That's a guess. Um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe, you know, uh, just hanging out with, like, a bunch of really tall writers. (laughs) Do you think it do you think it's dangerous for a writer to like buy into any hype or to like become confident? Do you think that your work could suffer if you if you listen to the like any sort of praise? Um yeah, that I mean that's that's a huge question, dude. And and I think it's I mean I think it's I think the answer is yes, but it it feels like it's it feels like a little bit split down the middle to me in that I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong for, for writers to, to listen to the way that people are responding, whether it be, you know, critics, whether they're, those reviews are good or bad or, or awards or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I again, like, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, I never read my reviews. I, I'll, I'll read all the reviews. And if it's, if it's great, I feel good for about five minutes. If it's a shitty review, I feel bad for about five minutes. And then, mm. you know, I'm, I'm on to the next thing. I think where people get 
I think we're, you know, I've seen some people kind of struggle is when they, they aren't able to move on, whether it's a good review or a bad review or good sales or bad sales or yeah. this thing got option for a movie or that thing didn't, you know, and you can't, you can't go back to work. And I think that's the real issue. Regardless of, of how people respond, you have to put the work first because really the work is all that matters. I mean, the fact that you would find something to like in this story and you would seek Jason out to read it and, and you'd want to put it on your podcast. Like, I mean, that means as much to me, that means more to me than it being selected for best American short stories because you're a reader who cares about it, you know, and, and, and that makes me want to go back to work. The, the other stuff, it's good or bad for about five minutes. Um, but the other thing feels really, really important to me, this idea of if you become, you know, too confident as a writer, like there's, I'm, I'm really kind of at this place in my mind where I'm thinking that anytime a writer is confident, like it's a bad move. Right. Like I always want to be writing from a place of yeah. insecurity. Yeah. I always want to be writing from a place of, for lack of a better word, vulnerability. You know, yeah. I don't want to be confident in, in what I'm writing because I, I want the story to lead me. I want the story to be confident. I want the characters to be confident. You know, I, I want to be, I want to be led toward that surprise. And if I'm, if I'm really confident and I'm the one like driving the story, I mean, that just feels boring and arrogant to me. The only perspective, I think that's a really healthy way to look at it, specifically saying, if you read reviews, no matter what the response is, in five minutes you've moved on. I think that's incredibly difficult to do. And my only perspective on this, because I'm, I, I'm an actor, and yeah. there's, a, it, there's a similar experience where people are judging you based on your talent and your gift, and they say you're great, or they say you're terrible. And there is this danger, I think, in good reviews more than bad in you thinking that your work is done because right. a stranger said, this performance is wonderful, kudos. And I right. remember doing a play with a friend and he said, don't read them because the, the, the good ones are even worse because then you think your work is done and you're going to start work, stop working and you think your performance mm. is complete. When it's not, it's ever evolving. It, it has to change. And I think it's dangerous as an artist, if you are told that you are, that it's good news and you, stu and you think that it's over and you buy into it. And I think most artists don't do that because the insecurity, I think a lot of times overwhelms that. Um, but I think you always have to grow. And if someone says, you did it, you won, you got first place, like where is there to yeah. go? So I think you sort of trick your mind into thinking, no, 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 I still have to prove myself. I still have to, I have these things to check off the list. I'm still, so you have that sort of creative drive still within you. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. I mean, yeah, it's, ex it, it's exactly right. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, you know, for me, um, I, I think for me, it's, it came from skating, you know, it was sort of like every, every, Every trick you learned, it made you want to learn 
10 other tricks. And every time you fell and like maimed yourself, you were just itching to get back on the board. And, uh, you know, when we when we made that documentary that again you were kind enough to mention, you know, it's called Waiting for Lightning and and um that comes from this uh from the Nietzsche poem that, you know, thus spoke Zarathustra and it was it's this there's this moment in that poem where it's sort of like you're climbing and climbing and climbing and you get to the top of the mountain and all you've wanted to do is get to the top of the mountain and and what's up there for you except lightning? Like mm. you've completely isolated yourself. You've you've absolutely done everything you can, and you get to the top of the mountain. Left, the only thing that's left is for you to be struck by lightning. And depending on which way you see it, you can say, "Oh, well, that's going to be inspiration, et cetera, et cetera." Or right. you can see it as you're going to get struck by lightning and fucking lights out. You know, right. because there's nothing left to do, and yeah, when you're you're yeah, I totally agree. If you people read reviews and they say like, "All right, I'm at the top of the mountain, nothing left for me to do." Like I I, I don't even I can't even fathom what that would feel like, yeah. you know? And I wouldn't and I wouldn't want to. I don't think you're um, a writer if you feel that, probably. Wait, say that again? I don't think you're you're really a writer if you would feel that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's another thing. I don't know what it's like for you, like, and I would actually love to hear it if you care to answer it. But you know, like, when you're doing the play, and and you know, how I would guess you change things night by night based on the way it was the previous night. And you know, when I've when I've read this story, I just I read it a you know a couple of weeks ago at a at an event in Buffalo, and. I read it from, you know, the the best American version of it and I was changing things. I was changing lines Whoa. and changing sentences as I was going along Whoa. because I thought, oh, that's kind of a flabby line. I can I can tighten that, you know? And so yeah, it's 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 it still feels alive. It still feels in flux. It still feels in process and and that feels like a gift. Is 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 that anything like what it's like for you in the play and other acting you've done? Does that feel like it seems like that's so, like you're skateboarding because you're improvising. I mean, you were in, I will answer your question, <laughs> but uh, you were in front of these people reading your work and you were improvising like in the moment. It seems like that's the same sort of thing you do as you're skating. Yeah, kind of? Yeah, probably. Um, but I, I think it's just, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. And and uh, although I think you're probably overestimating my skating, um, <laughs> but it's uh, it, it's just me like reading, and I know what line is going to come up in two or three lines, and I and I know there's you know there's a word that if I if I take you know three you know if I take if I take three if I take three words to take what how can I say this if I use three words to say what five words are on the page, right, right. then I think I can make it tighter. Right. And, and so I, I try that, and, and who knows what it'll be like the next time I read it. Well, to, to answer your question in regards to like acting in a play, um, because, we, because we, you know, unless it's an original play and you're, it's a one-man show, the play is already written and there's nothing to change. 
mm-hmm. word wise. You can change your behavior and your performance, right. but that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're su- sort of surfing the wave of the audience's response, and it's right. a Tuesday or it's a Wednesday matinee, and it's a really old crowd, and certain jokes come right. fall completely flat, or other jokes sort of explode because of the demographic of what who's in the audience. Um, right. You're sort of adjusting your performance based on them, and for me, it, it gets worrisome because I don't want to be completely shackled to them and change mm-hmm. my performance based on their response. Because I want to honor what I did in the rehearsal room for three weeks, where right, when no one right. was in there. But they're part of this experience. They paid a ticket to sit there and watch, and we have to include them. So you want to honor what you've done, but you also want to honor. The audience, because without them, there is no, you know, theatrical performance. It gets it gets tricky in film and television when mm-hmm. it's done, it's color corrected, and it's on film or some sort of digital media, and there's nothing you can change ever. Right. And that right. Be- that becomes maybe harder to adjust to because there's no you cannot change. It's all over. Film is forever. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All that, all that resonates with me and especially like the, the audience thing. Um, you know, when I read this story in Buffalo, it was, um, it was at a, basically a high school and, you know, so all of the kids in the audience were the age of the kids in the story. And, uh, you know, I have a, I have a, uh, you know, just a dear, dear friend, and she's an amazing writer, and she read this story, and she was really, really kind about it, and and she turned it into an exercise for her students, where where she said, you know, uh, she she has her students write about a time when they were in a close quarters, awkward moment with an adult, because they have so much to draw. I read this to the to the students. And I kind of introed it like that. And I said, you know, who, who here has been in an awkward, you know, situation with an adult and you're the only two people there and 500 hands went up in the auditorium, you know? And so it, this kind of story, it's, it, 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 that was the demographic for this story to really, really succeed. And I can imagine what it would be like with your saying like, okay, the thing that works well on a Tuesday is not going to work well on a Wednesday matinee. Um, and you have to, yeah, you have to, you have to surf that. Um, and in Buffalo, I, I got kind of lucky and I caught a good wave. Brent Anthony Johnston has been speaking to me from Cambridge. He wrote Encounters with Unexpected Animals. He was read by Jacob Pitts. And I'm so grateful uh, for you to talk to us. Thank you so much, Brent. Thanks, thanks for having me, Nathan. I, re- I, Nate, I'm getting all the names wrong. Nate, sorry, Jacob, got your name wrong. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for taking the interest. I really appreciate it. Let's take a really short break here on Reading Aloud, and we'll be right back with more. Today's episode is brought to you by Bulu Box. It is a sample box service. Uh, they send you this box in the mail with a bunch of sample products. And you get to choose which ones you like, and then you can order more. So each month they send you four or five healthy snacks, vitamins, or supplements to try, plus uh, lifestyle bonus products like fitness DVDs or recipes. But here's the best part. For every $10 box you get, you can get $10 back in reward points. So that's 10 bucks you can use towards a full-size purchase of whatever product that you dig. So you go to Bulu Box. 
Dot com. You click on the microphone in the top left corner and enter promo code NATE. So they're offering a chance to get $20 off a three-month subscription. That's three months for just $10 with this promo code NATE. So bluebox.com, click on the microphone in the top left-hand corner, enter promo code NATE, and here's to discovering a healthier you. This episode is brought to you by Adaptive Books' The Silence of Six from Norton Award-winning author E.C. Myers. Goodreads selected The Silence of Six as one of the five best YA novels this month and is an excellent choice for adult readers who like a good page-turner. I just got the hard copy of this sent to me. I'm about to go on a uh, little Christmas break vacation, and I am going to dig into this thing, so I will report back. What is The Silence of Six? That's what our hero Max Stein tries to figure out after his best friend hacks into a live-streaming presidential debate and asks the candidates the cryptic question, what is the silence of six and what are you going to do about it? And then puts a gun to his head and shoots himself on live TV. Whoa. The Silence of Six is one of the first novels from Adaptive Books, the new publishing imprint of Adaptive Studios, which reimagines abandoned stories from studios, production companies, agencies, and estates for retelling across a wide range of media platforms, books, comics, online, as well as film and television. The Silence of Six is available wherever books are sold, including Amazon, iBooks, BN.com, IndieBound, or your local bookseller. Or go to www.adaptivestudios.com slash podcast and sign up for the chance to win a free hardcover copy. Okay, back to the show. Welcome back to Reading Aloud. I'm your host, Nate Cordry. This is the uh, third act of our show, the last segment before I say goodbye. Um, and it's the holidays, so um, I wanted to give you a little Christmas or Kwanzaa or Hanukkah gift, whatever you celebrate. Um, and it's a tradition amongst a lot of families um, who celebrate Christmas, I guess, to read uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas. A lot of families on Christmas Eve, the dad in the family gets out the old worn copy of Twas the Night Before Christmas and reads it to the family. And it's, uh, it's not just Clark Griswold that does it. A lot of dads do it. Uh, my dad did. A lot of my friends who are dads do it as well. Um, and so I wanted to do that. I wanted to have a reading of Twas the Night Before Christmas. But I didn't know who to choose um, to, to read it because I was wondering, like, I need a, like a voice with sort of weight and, and age and wisdom. And then I was like, well, why don't I just go to the source, you know? Hello? Dad. Yes, sir, I'm here. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> do, you have your, uh, do you have your Christmas shopping in order yet? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Pretty really? much, I'm almost done. How about you? Uh, I ha well, I have like a one-seventh of it done. Oh, one-seventh, okay. So I got six-sevenths worth of Christmas shopping to do, so I, I'm a little uh, underwater. Uh, <laughs> well, you still got some time. I have some time, and then this is my week. I, I gave myself this week to uh, to sort it all out, but it gets complicated when you have to ship stuff. I know, yeah, you're right, absolutely. You have to ship uh, some stuff out here to California, right? I do, yes, I do. And we finally got it in on Sunday morning. They had the last delivery. And um, I'm going to package it up as soon as I finish here with you and uh, take it to the post office. Oh, perfect. Okay. So I hope that we get it out there in time. Do you, uh, 
it must be as like a grandfather when you were when you were only a father you spent a lot of time buying toys you had two boys and a girl so you bought a lot sure. of toys when you were um when you were a younger man and then your kids become teenagers and you don't you don't need to go to a toy store and then you have grandkids and all of a sudden you have to go back <laughs> that's true yeah I mean, I'm assuming you only yeah. went to like the the the. There was probably a 15 or 20 year gap between going in or out of a Toys R Us. That must have been a shock. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, true. Like, what are these new toys? What the hell is this stuff? What about just a doll and a baseball mitt? You know. I know. Whatever happened to all that? You know, yeah. all I hear now is PS4. <laughs> and uh, Xbox 17 or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> what did what keeps going on and on? What did your um my nephews, your grandsons uh, ask for this year? Was there something specific that they really wanted? Uh yeah, Noah really wants the PS4. And uh Jeez. Laura had told him, you know what? I don't think you're going to get it, yeah. but you have a little bit of money in the bank. If you get a bunch of gift cards oh. and you get some cash, you can combine everything. And if you have enough, you can get it. Okay. So who knows? <laughs> okay. Was there anything specific that my nieces, your granddaughters, asked for that you have to ship to California? No, no. The only stipulation there is no more than one gift. That's it. One gift so, is enough. Yeah. So we uh, we went on uh we had a, a catalog here called Young Explorers and they have some interesting gifts in there so we picked something out of there and had them ship it here and uh we're going to wrap it and then ship it out today I hope What is uh what's young what's Young Explorers Well it's kind of an educational toy site and then it's got you know a bunch of other toys there's Disney stuff in there Hmm um is it stuff for boys, a boys section, there's a girls section, but it's mostly for kids, say, under preteens. Oh, okay. Everything is preteens. So no video game stuff. It's no, more... no video games, no electronics, none of that kind of right. stuff. Just a yeah. wooden blocks and boxes. That's there it. you go. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Just yeah. Lincoln Logs, that's all. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I was trying to remember specific Christmas memories growing up. Do you have any... Christmas memories that you that you think about this time of year that always kind of come flooding back into your brain when you were a kid or when you were when you were a dad. Well, you know, I dad. remember I remember one story uh, when I was probably eight years old, maybe ten years old. Uh, I came into our living room uh, with my mother and father. My grandmother were there, and uh, there's a bunch of presents. And oh, wow, it was great! So I started opening my presents, and probably had you know eight or ten presents. And then, right behind the Christmas tree, there was a big, big box covered with a uh, piece of wrapping paper. So after I finished all the ones I could see, my mother said, there's one in the back there. Pull that paper away and see what that is. So I pulled the paper away, and it was a, it was a trunk. And I said, a trunk? They must be sending me away somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to India. Yeah. Going Merry to Christmas. India. So anyway, but anyway, I pulled the thing out and I opened it up and the whole trunk was full of more presents to open. Oh my. And I thought like a kid in the candy store. Here I am. Holy. This is great. Man, I already had 10. Now I got about 10 or 12 more in there. 
So Holy cow. I remember we used to, Bob and Laura and I used to, we used to hide. Um, we used to take like one present and hide it. Oh, did you really? Because we, everyone wanted to be the last person to open oh, a present. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the big thing. And Rob was always better at it than everyone else. And he always, <laughs> he was the oldest and he would hide it in the most spectacular places. And Christmas would be over and that depression would start setting in. And then he'd go, yeah. oh, I got one more. And I'm like, ah, oh, man. Of course, he'd get to open one more present ahead of everyone else. Do you um, remember the year that you were sick? You were uh, five, maybe six years old, and Christmas Eve afternoon or night, you didn't feel very well, and as the, the evening wore on, you got sicker and sicker, and finally we just, we put you in bed, and I can't remember whether you had stomach virus or whether you had a bad cold, but the next morning, you did not get out of bed until about five o'clock in the afternoon. And you were sick all Christmas Day, and everybody felt so bad. And I remember taking a present up to you in bed and saying, Nate, would you like to open a present? And all of her was, no! <laughs> and, <laughs> and it wasn't until about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon that you actually got out of bed and decided you would come down. And then I think then you opened, you opened some presents then. I remember you this. Were, Sad little, sad little guy. <laughs> I, re I remember the couch that I laid. I remember uh, as you went down the stairs and you turned to the right, there was that couch against the window on sure. the Face Academy Ave. And I remember, I remember lying on that couch, curled up in a blanket, feeling miserable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you were, you were a sick little boy. Ah, uh, it's just of all the days to get sick. I know it. <laughs> Heartbreaking. Any other day, but that day. Do you remember that fire? Oh, my God, yes, I sure do. What happened there? Well, we had gone and gotten Chinese food, and your great-grandmother was there, and uh, your Uncle Skip was there from New Hampshire. And um, we had gotten a candle from someone, and it was a homemade candle, and I put it on the mantle. I had a fire in the fireplace going, and I, I put this candle on the mantle, and I lit it. And... There was a clear view from the dining room kitchen. You know, the, we had a table to eat in kitchen. Yeah. And I could see right through into the living room, and there was a picture up over that couch you're talking about. And in the reflection of that, I looked up, and it, the fire was <laughs> was uh, reflected in that picture. And I said, oh, my God, and I ran in there, <laughs> and the whole candle was melted along the mantle. Oh, Jesus. And so my first reaction was to pull it all into the fireplace. Oh god. And so with my bare hand I decided I would do that against the hot wax. Oh. That was not really so smart. No. Nope. Because nope. the whole bottom of my head, heel of my hand was completely engulfed in hot wax and burned the hell out of it. <laughs> but uh we had a little bit of damage, but it really wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. Did you have to go to the hospital? No, no, I don't believe I did. Oh, okay. I don't believe I did, no. Jesus. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen this year. Oh, hope not either. Uh, hope not either. I asked you to, to, to read something for, um, for my listeners. Do you have it there in front of you? I, as a matter of fact, I do. Okay. And um, I'm ready, I guess, any time you are. Go ahead. Well, 
to preface this, um, a little bit of history, I didn't realize that this poem was written back in 1822. And the author of the poem was Clement Clark Moore. And as I said, he, uh, he did it in 1822. Wow. It was published in 1823. And uh, it was not until 1844, 20 years later, that he even claimed ownership for the part. But the interesting thing to me was that, uh, and I'll read from here from um, um, my good friend Wikipedia. Sure. The poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," has refined our image of Christmas and Santa Claus. Prior to the creation of the story of "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," St. Nicholas who was the patron saint of children, had never been associated with either sleigh or reindeer. Whoa. So, yeah, interesting, isn't it? I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So, so thank you, Mr. Wikipedia. Yeah, and thank you, Clement Clark Moore, for bringing there you go. reindeers and sleigh to the, to the party. That's right, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> well, when, when you're, whenever, you're, uh, whenever you're ready, take your time. All right, thank you so much. Stand by. Twas a night before Christmas poem. Twas a night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children had nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer with a little old driver so lively and quick I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick more rapid than eagles his courses they came and he whistled and shouted and called them by name Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the courses they flew, with a sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas, too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses 
his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye, a twist of his head, soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work. Filled all the stockings and then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. That was perfect, Dad. Good, 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 good. That was just perfect. Great. Thank you for reading that for me. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for asking me. I'm so glad you did it. You were fantastic. That's exactly what I had hoped it would sound like. (laughs) Oh, good. Great. (laughs) That was, and I'm uh, wiping wiping tears and snot from my face as well. (laughs) 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 So you did that. So congratulations. Um, well, I'm sorry I'm going to miss you this year at Christmas. I'm sorry I won't be home. I know, but I'm sure you'll have a great adventure. I'm really excited. I think we're going to have a, yeah. have a great time. And, That's good. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you're going. Yeah. So and when th- do you leave? Uh, I leave on uh, Sunday, a week from yesterday. So. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. You, yeah. See, you do have some shopping to do yet. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot. I have a lot of work to do, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have at it starting this afternoon. All right, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas, Dad. Thanks so much for doing Merry, that. Merry Christmas to you. Okay, I'll I'll and, talk to you on uh, Christmas. We will we will talk with you soon. Okay, love you, Dad. Talk okay, to you soon. Love you too. Bye bye. And uh, and that's our show. Thanks for listening to Reading Aloud. I'm your host Nate Cordry. Um, we have our book club coming up next week uh, so be sure to tune into the book club we're doing Adele Wallman's uh, The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P and then we'll also be announcing the next book for the next book club coming in January I'm thinking about doing a classic rereading a book that we may have read when we were in high school or college but now we can read again as adults and have uh, maybe have a different perspective to it Uh, Anyway, have a wonderful holiday, however you celebrate, and uh, we'll see you next week. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane! Listeners, help Reading Aloud stay free to download by completing this short, anonymous survey. It will take no more than five minutes, and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcasts and our listeners like you. So when you have to listen to ad reads, they're more catered to you, which really helps us. So listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And we promise not to share or sell your email addresses, and we won't send you anything. You just have to go to 
to podsurvey.com slash Nate. That's podsurvey.com slash Nate. Take the survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We'll see you next week. Pop. 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 Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.